you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. At the beginning of every year, we find ourselves with a natural break in the routine of our lives. And this break has become, at least in our culture, uh, a fairly popular opportunity for us to reflect back on the past year of our life and to look forward and contemplate what the year to come will bring. And over the course of several weeks of planning and prayer, the elders decided that for us as a church family, the new year should also provide an opportunity, as it were, for us to come back to the basics of our faith. As God's people, the beginning of the year can be a time for us and should be a time for us to think about our relationship to God and to evaluate it. How healthy is our relationship with God? Is it growing and vibrant? Is it an essential part of our daily life? Or has it become that seldom used app that just takes up space on your phone? For the Christian, such a thing should be unthinkable. For our religion is not a matter of form and ritual, but of relationship with the living God. For Christianity, then, it is this relationship, this fellowship we have with God that becomes the indicator of our spiritual health. Are we actively seeking to maintain and grow in our fellowship with God? Or have we left it aside? If we desire to grow in our fellowship with God, how do we begin to do that? If we were to think of our relationship with God like a building, then the Bible is clear that our fellowship with God is supported by two great pillars. At the base level, the entire structure of our life is is founded upon God's own character and His grace to us through Jesus Christ. But upon that foundation supporting all of our life are two great pillars, pillars of prayer and the Word of God. At its simplest, the Word of God, the Bible, is the means by which God speaks to us, His people. And prayer is the means of our speaking back to God. Without these pillars, without regular Bible intake, without regular prayer, talking to God, our fellowship with God becomes weakened and sickly and less than what God himself wants it to be. Therefore, the elders desire that beginning this year, every year, the first two weeks of our life together, looking at the word of God, worshiping together, will from now on be spent bringing us back to these these twin pillars, this basics of our fellowship with God, of prayer and the Word. We begin this annual emphasis this morning by looking to John 15, and here we see the themes of the Word of God, of prayer, of our fellowship with God, and our life with Him, all tightly woven together in Jesus' teaching to His disciples. In fact, this teaching is... I hate, to, I hate to even say it, but in some ways it has more weight. It's not as if all of the Bible is not the Word of God and not, and not valuable to us, but there are still some parts that, that seem to have a more immediate sense of, of weightiness to our lives. And this is one of them, for this is the very last things that Jesus said to his disciples before he went to the cross and experienced death for them and resurrection and ascension back to the Father. In other words, right before his death, Jesus thinks these are some of the most important things that he could tell his disciples. This is what he says in part beginning at verse 1 of John 15. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that does not bear fruit he prunes 
that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is the word of God this morning. May he bless its reading. Next week we will pick up this passage again and see how our fellowship with God relates to prayer. But this morning we want to consider the importance of the word of God to our fellowship with God. And here in these verses Jesus shows us how the word of God is the means by which our fellowship with his father is created and cultivated. As we think about how we do that with the word, I want to first back up and, in a sense, give you the end of the passage first. I want to hold out the carrot. I want to hold out the blessing, the reward of, of life with God through the abiding in, of the Word of God first and hopefully whet your appetite to know how can we do this? How can we abide in the Word? And then show you how Jesus says we can do that. So first I want us to see this, the expected fruit of life in Christ. The expected fruit of life in Christ. Jesus begins here by saying, I am the true vine. Now, Jesus makes a lot of I am statements in the book of John. He says that he, he says, I am the door uh, of the sheep. I am the shepherd. I am the good shepherd. Uh, I am the bread of life. Here he says, I am the true vine. Why does he do that? Why does he distinguish himself in that way? Well, in part, I'm sure it's because throughout the Old Testament, the people of God, Israel, are referred to as a vine. And over and over again, as Israel is referred to as a vine, it's always a vine that doesn't produce good fruit. It's supposed to, but it only gives bad fruit. In, in Isaiah, uh, the, God, as it were, sings a song about this vineyard, chapter 5, that he has planted. And he basically says, I planted a vineyard, and I love this vineyard, and I cultivated this vineyard, hoping to get beautiful, luscious fruit, and I only got sour grapes. And the vineyard is a metaphor for Israel that he has loved and he has made his own and he has cherished and he has cultivated and he has invested and instead all he got collectively was rebellion and sin. Jesus says that he is not like that Israel. He is not like that vine who failed. He is the true vine. He is the true Israel. He is the one who always produces the fruits of righteousness. And Jesus says, because his people are now grafted into him, they should not be like Israel that produced bad fruit. They should be like him producing good fruit. 
And the only way that we are going to do that is to remain connected to him. He is the true vine. And in our fellowship with him alone, we are able to produce spiritual fruit. Jesus says in verse 4, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you. Unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If we abide in Christ, this is the promise. If we remain in him, if we stay connected to him, remain close to him, then we will experience the kind of spiritual life God desires us to have. A life of spiritual fruitfulness. A life that produces real and lasting righteousness. Specifically, it is a life that produces fruit that leads to two things. First of all, it leads to God's glory. It leads to God's glory. In verse 8, Jesus begins to explain this imagery of the vine and the branches that he lays out in verses 1 through 7. He explains the implications. He's explained that his disciples are to remain in him and so bear fruit. And in verse 8, he explains why this is. He says, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Notice the logic of what Jesus is saying here. When we bear fruit, we reveal that we are Jesus' disciples. We prove, we show, we give evidence that we are genuinely Christians. The reality is just because someone says, I am a Christian, I am a follower of Christ, that doesn't mean that they are. Jesus says the evidence, the way in which you know someone has real faith is the fact that they are producing fruit because they are abiding in the Son. But in proving you are truly Jesus' disciples, what do you do? You bring glory to God the Father. Because God is the one who sent Christ into the world to be our Savior. So to the degree that we say, yes, Christ is worth following. Yes, Christ is worthy of my devotion. Yes, Christ is worth our efforts at remaining in him and deepening in our fellowship with him. That we are actually honoring the one who sent Christ. We are honoring the one who gave us Christ, namely God the Father. So if you are a Christian, if your life is united to Christ, you've been adopted by God, you bear his name. The question is, will you bring him glory with your life or will you dishonor him? One kind of fruit, good fruit, abundant fruit, honors God. It glorifies him. It makes him to, 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 to be seen as the beautiful and glorious God that he is. But another kind of fruit, a bad fruit, shows God not to be that. It dishonors God. And it causes people to say, if that's what their God produces in their life, I don't want that God. So the question is, what kind of fruit do you want to bear with your life? Someone recently introduced me to the show Duck Dynasty. If you've never seen it, all I can say is it's an amazing show that utterly defies any coherent explanation. My best attempt would be to say it's a reality show about a a real-life family of Beverly Hillbillies who have made their money not with oil but through duck calls. And it's absolutely captivating. I had to beg my wife to watch it with me, and now it is her guilty pleasure. She will say at night... We're getting in, in bed, and, and we're going to watch someone on television, and she says, Let, let's watch a little Cy Robertson. And I say, okay, I, I've got it. And we put it on, the DVD. In one episode, one of the brothers decides to buy a vineyard online. Not, not a good plan to buy anything like that online. His desire is to produce 
wine that bears the company name and so extend their brand. He gets to the vineyard and he finds there's no grapes. It's just barren fields and, and vines. So he calls in a wine expert and he's like, hey, well, what do we do here? And the wine expert tells him, it's going to be a year or more before you're not only producing grapes but producing wine. And that's a problem because this brother has already scheduled a wine tasting three weeks from now. Long story short, they decide to buy regular store grapes and plain sugar and yeast and cook something up in the distillery. You can imagine the result. It is a total disaster. One brother likens the taste of the wine to animal urine. They don't want to tarnish the brand name, so they scrub this play and sell the vineyard and say, let's try something else. Now ask yourself this morning, when it comes to living a life for God, when it comes to producing fruit for the church and for the world to see, what kind of fruit do you want to produce? What, what is the production of your life that you want sent out? Do you want the fruit of your life to remind people of something foul like wild animal urine? Or do you want them to see the fruit of your life and stagger back in awe at God who ultimately produced that fruit in your life? Jesus says that in calling you to himself, in giving you faith, in giving you the grace of forgiveness, our lives have been united to his. How can we not want our lives to reflect that glory of what God has done? Through Christ we receive spiritual nourishment that we might thrive and produce fruit that gives glory to God. More than that, though, this fruit not only leads to God's glory, but secondly, it leads to humanity's joy. Humanity's joy. Notice how Jesus continues after verse 8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Now, God's love is spoken of in a variety of ways in the Bible. Like us, God is a complex being, so that I can say, I love brownies, and I can also say, I love my wife. And I better not mean the same thing, right? Or else I've got problems at home, okay? I can, uh, you know, I just saw uh, uh, somebody tweeted the other day that if most husbands love their wives like they love their iPhones, they would have great marriages. Okay, now regardless of what you think about that, uh, the point is I can say I love this object and I love this object and I better mean something different. And likewise with God, it says God loves, God loves, God loves, but the way in which the love is described is multifaceted. So, for example, in some passages, God's love is directed towards his elect people whom he loves in a special way that he doesn't love any other. Other places, his love is seen in his common grace to all people, the wicked and the righteous. In this world, you do not have to be a Christian and godly in order to prosper. Even the wicked are able to prosper. The sun and the rain shines on both. In this way, God loves humanity, his creation. His love is also seen specifically in his concern for sinners as he pleads with them, turn, repent, find living water in me instead of the dried out useless cisterns you're trying to dig for yourself. Still yet, we have a passage like this one. 
hear the Father's love for us, his people, is conditional upon our obedience. Listen closely to that. The Father's love in this passage is conditional upon our obedience. Now, let's be clear. Jesus is not saying, this is how you become God's followers. You love him, then he loves you. No, these are already his followers. These are already his disciples, and he is explaining to them, this is how you remain in, this is how you grow in your fellowship with God the Father. So just like with with my children, there is a sense in which I will always love them unconditionally. I, I, I will never banish them away from me, no matter how bad they, they are, no matter what they do, no matter how they speak to uh, me or their mother. I tell them, you will always be my son, and I will always love you. Nevertheless, there is another component to our relationship. There is a component of intimacy in our love, and that is strained and damaged by their disobedience. Likewise, Jesus says to his disciples that there is a conditionality to their fellowship and the love of God based upon their obedience to him. And notice, Jesus says this is based in his own experience. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Now, this is the eternal Son of God talking here. This is someone who has never had beginning, will never have end, has always been divine and in loving fellowship with the Father. And yet, and yet, in some way, his obedience to the Father continues to deepen and beautify their fellowship and their love. And he says the same is true for us. The love of Jesus for the Father is seen in his obedience to the Father. Moreover, this obedience brings him joy. Joy to be in the fullness of the Father's love. This is why in John chapter 4 he says, I I don't need food right now because I am delighting to do the will of my heavenly Father. I am enjoying obeying him so much and seeing the fruit of that obedience that my soul is satisfied as if I've had the biggest meal. Jesus takes joy and delight in obedience. And he says, this should be our experience as well. So many people walk through life, even sometimes the Christian life, and it's miserable. It is absolutely miserable. They have no happiness at all. Others have happiness, but it's a fleeting happiness that is contingent on the things of this world and the circumstances of their lives. When they think of words like obedience... And service, they cannot imagine how that would make their life better or bring them joy. But Jesus takes that mindset and he completely flips it on its head. He says, if you want joy in your life, if you want full joy, deep, lasting, abiding, base your life upon it in the worst of circumstances, joy, then you will obey your heavenly Father. You will do what you were created to do, to glorify the living God and his son Jesus Christ by deepening in your fellowship with him, by lovingly obeying the commands he has given you through faith. So if you've got no joy this morning, it's because you've not got enough Jesus. You've not abided with him. You're not living with him. You have no lasting joy because you're not obeying his commands and deepening in fellowship with 
with him. This is the expectation God has for our life, that we will abide in Christ and bear fruit, and that fruit will both bring God glory and bring us joy. I hope, I hope that you, you see that and you want that. You say, I, I, I don't want to be a vineyard that produces disgusting wine that causes people to have soured stomachs and spit it into the gutter. I want to produce I want to produce fruit that causes people to love God and seek after him. I want to have a life of fruitfulness, of obedience that brings me joy and happiness in my life. The kind that I cannot find anywhere else. The question is how do we get there? How do we do this? Jesus has been speaking about abiding in him, and it is important that we not only bear fruit and thus show our status as disciples, glorifying God, but that we bear fruit by abiding in him. That's what he says is essential. And how do we abide in him? This is the the second thing that we see. We see the eternal word for life in Christ. The eternal word for life in Christ. What we see in this passage is that spiritual life and fruit come only by abiding with God through Christ. And how do we abide in Him? Through His eternal Word. We see this in four ways. First, we see that life begins by the Word. Life begins by the Word. Look back at verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit He takes away and every branch that does bear fruit He prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. What does it mean to be clean in verse 3? It means to be made clean by God. It means to be brought out of the world and the stain of sin into fellowship and life with him. In brief, it means to be saved. Isn't this what we just sung? I was blinded by my sin, had no ears to hear your voice, did not know your love within, had no taste for heaven's joys. Then your spirit gave me life, opened up your word to me through the gospel of your son, gave me endless hope and peace. This this is what he is talking about here. Verse 3, it is through the word that Jesus has spoken to them, that life has come, that salvation has come into their life. Isn't that what Paul says in Romans 10? Faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. And in this context, it's the totality of Jesus' life and teaching for the last three years. As the word made flesh lived out and explained before his disciples. His teaching has contained the message of the cross. He's not only told them it is coming, he's not only explained to them what it would mean, but he is about to live it out visibly before their eyes. It's upon his death and resurrection that their belief in Jesus as the promised Messiah becomes crystallized into Jesus as the promised Messiah who would atone for sins as the suffering servant, offering not the blood and bulls of goats for their salvation to make them right with God, but by offering his own blood. Furthermore, they would see and understand that this crucified Christ would rise again to rule at the right hand of God as the king of all kings. Just so with us today. Faith in Christ, faith in God's promises, faith that brings salvation from sin and life with God begins with hearing the word. 
Life begins by the word. But secondly, life is sustained by the word. Life is sustained by the word. Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Verse 4, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Pruning is the sometimes painful but always needed experience of God's people. As a Christian, you are connected to Christ. You are abiding in him. But you could always be doing better. You could always be producing more fruit. You could always be be seeking more righteousness. And so in love, God comes in and he begins to prune you back. Pruning is is a word related to the word in verse 3 about the cleaning. You've already been made clean in that you belong to God. Fundamentally, you are his. And now... Like the master vine dresser, God begins to care for you. He cleans off or he snips away those parts of your life that are hindering you from abiding more deeply in Christ and producing more fruit for God. He cleans the sin off your life and causes you to produce more fruit. This week I read an interesting review of a biography of Scott Stapp, the lead singer for the band Creed. Turns out Stapp is a professing Christian which I'd heard before but didn't really know if that was true. But this biography deals a lot about uh, his belief and how the fame he experienced through his band almost ruined his life. When things were at the peak for the band, Stapp says this, I was bathing in my glory. You work hard, you put up with rejection, you live with frustration, and when you finally reach the top, you want to take a couple victory laps. You want to strut. That's only natural. But what happens when you confuse yourself, your talent, your charisma, your creativity with God? Later, he says, I disgraced myself and the God I claim to serve. But God was gracious to step. He got his attention by beginning to strip away everything that he had worked so hard for. At one point, he had been fleeced by his manager, abandoned by his bandmates, strung out on drugs. Stapp says the only thing that he had left was his biological son, and God. But that's exactly where Stapp needed to be. For in that place, he was able to see his sin for what it was and repent and turn to God to have a renewed and a changed life whereby he was able to like, once again begin producing fruit for God. Now, the reality is most of us will not have a dramatic story like that. But the pruning work of God is the same. Because he loves us, God desires to clean off the dirt and the disease of our sin that the vine of life might thrive. How does he do that? Most often by his word. Listen to the tight logic of Jesus' teaching in these these verses. In verse 2, the Father prunes us to create more fruit. In verse 4, we produce fruit by abiding in Christ. In verse 9, we abide in Christ by abiding in his love. How do we abide in his love? Verse 10, by keeping his commands. Where do we find his commands? His words. His words. It is his life-giving word that sustains our life in Christ and keeps us from perishing like a Judas or a Demas, men who began well, well but failed in the end and were cast off like dead vines into the fire, according to Jesus' words here. Our eternal life begins by the word, it is sustained by the word, and that life is also multiplied by the word. Life is multiplied by the word. 
Remember earlier we saw from verse 8 that God's will for his people is that they bear much fruit in their life. That is, through their fellowship with Christ, they grow in godliness and engage in effective ministry. The spiritual life and nourishment that we receive from God, therefore, is meant to be multiplied. God doesn't just mean to give us life. He means to give us life that we may produce fruit, which will in turn result in more life in others. How does that happen? Verse 5. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We saw this earlier. Abiding in Christ produces real fruit in our life and ministry. By contrast, though, apart from Christ, we can't do any of it. Think about the seriousness of what Jesus is saying in verse 5. If you, in him, you bear fruit, but apart from him, you can do nothing. Think about what Jesus is saying there. It is impossible for you, no matter what you, no matter what you say you believe, no matter how much you attend church, no matter how much you do any Christian activity, it is impossible for you to do anything of eternal consequence apart from Christ. In other words, you can play church, you can play games, you can be very busy, but that doesn't mean that you're producing real spiritual fruit unless you are abiding in Christ. Have you ever been given some task? Perhaps if you're a youngster, a task given by your parents. Or if you're older, a task given by your employer. And for whatever reason, you forced around, you frittered away your time, and suddenly it's time for the, the assignment to come due, and you've got nothing to show for it. Your parent or your boss shows up, and, and you begin to have that pit rising in your stomach because you know you are standing there empty-handed. Imagine that feeling magnified a million times. The God of the universe has slaughtered his son for you. He has given you every grace imaginable. He has brought you to his table of fellowship as one of his children, giving you the most honored privilege imaginable, serving him. And yet you become lazy. You become self-indulgent and complacent and the day of judgment comes and you stand before him and now you have nothing of eternal consequence to show. Suddenly, the depth of that pit in your stomach feels like a black hole about to swallow you up. You have no offering of service to lay at the feet of God as an offering that will help to magnify his glory for all eternity. There, there, is, there is no fruit of humanity saying, I came to God, I grew in my knowledge of God, I deepened in my fellowship with God because of this individual's life. You stand barren before him, saved, as it were, by the skin of your teeth. That doesn't have to be the testimony of your life on the last day. Jesus promises, if you abide in me, you will produce lasting fruit your life will be multiplied well beyond yourself before God as you serve him. Christ is the vital link, not just to our own growth with God, but to our service to God as well. Therefore, we must maintain our communion with Christ. And how is that done? Verse 8, we abide in Christ as his words abide in us. It's not surprising that we remember Matthew's gospel at the very end. How does Jesus say the apostles should make disciples? By teaching them to observe all that I have commanded by taking them back to the word of God. Again and again and again, we see the word of God being the key to our life. Finally, we see, number four, that life is meant to be petitioned by the word. 
petitioned by the word. Petitioned is simply a word that means prayer, asking God for something. In verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Verse 7. This is where we're going to pick up next week, so I won't say much here. I simply want to show you that it is the word of God that drives the kind of prayers that God delights to answer. The application for this morning's sermon is simple. Abide in the word of God. Read it. Meditate on it. Memorize it. All of Scripture points to life. So you cannot go wrong anywhere you are in the Bible. It is all Christ's words. Let this book be your constant companion and your sure guide. Let it lead you to a life of glory and joy that God desires as you abide in the Son. And this is not about empty knowledge that puffs up and makes you prideful. It is not about arrogant academic Uh, information that is abstracted from life or an activity to simply check off on a list and feel good about. This is about intimacy with God himself. This is about experiencing the fullness of joy in this life and spiritual fruitfulness as we live with and serve our God and our King. What kind of life do you want? Are you willing to work for it? Are you prepared to soak in the word as a discipline that God honors and blesses slowly over time? Loved ones, devotions are not magic. It is not simply the the, the sitting down and the opening of this book that somehow something mystical is going to happen. It's not Harry Potter's spell book. It doesn't work that way. Some days you may open the word, you may read a verse, and it, it might be like electric as God's spirit speaks to your heart bringing you love with sin and giving you joy and confidence to have the grace of his forgiveness. But sometimes you're just reading and you're just reading and you're just reading and you need to understand. You need to understand that God's word is used by the spirit much more like a marinade than a microwave. It is meant to be soaked in. It is meant to be lived in, not just zapped into our lives a little bit at a time. Soak in it for weeks and months and your life will become to be permeated by it. Look back a year or two and you'll notice changes that God is making in your life. Stand back at the end of a decade or two and you'll see life and ministry that has made a difference in eternity. Consider a lifetime abiding with Christ through his word. And you will likely see the image of Christ reflected back in your own soul. Deuteronomy 6 says that God's God desires his word to be on our heart when we walk and when we lie down and when we rise up, that every part of our life should be affected by the word. In Joshua, God's servant is commanded to not let the book of God's law depart from his mouth, that he might stay in it and should meditate on it day and night, that he might have success in all that he does. In Psalm 1 that we we read earlier, the person who is blessed by God is the one who delights in God's law and meditates on it day and night. Later in Psalm 119, we see that we should hide the word of God in our heart. We should memorize it that it might serve us later in life, meditate on it all day long. In Proverbs, it is the wise person who stores up God's commands like hidden treasure. The wise person who seeks to write the the tablet of God's word on their heart. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says his words provide a sure foundation for life that allow us to stand in the judgment. Therefore, in James 1, the apostle says that God's people should continually look intently at the perfect word of God and do what it says. In Colossians 3, Paul says the word of God should dwell richly in us so that in whatever we do, we might be able to do it in the name of Jesus and with thankfulness to God the Father. Friends and loved ones, for the sake of your own soul, for the sake of your fruitfulness, 
for God, for the sake of your joy and the glory of God's name. Abide in the Word. Father, this is my prayer this morning for myself and for the people that are gathered together here. As we stand on the precipice of this new year and wonder what our lives might be like, Father, rather than make some vacuous resolution that we will likely not keep by the beginning of the next month, instead, Father, help us to purpose in our lives to seek you and in seeking you to do it through your word. Father, we pray that this would result in glory to your name and joy in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.